Hi, I'm the producer of A Public Affair, Jade Isiri Ramos. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the station. We take donations all year long at wortfm.org. Thanks. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. I'm Andrew Thomas filling in for Douglas Haynes. On today's show, we're talking about civil war and contemporary U.S. politics. It's 2024, an election year, a year many of us are dreading. A Biden and Trump rematch seems inevitable. Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis has called it quits, and Nikki Haley has suffered two consecutive primary defeats. Trumpism is strong, stronger even, despite his legal woes. Will Trump even be a candidate on the ballot? How will the Trump faithful respond if he's not? How do we respond if he is and he wins? The January 6th insurrection had many talking of civil war. Is the United States about to enter a second civil war? Is it already in one? For insurrectionists, the long-awaited day had finally come. The tree of liberty was due for a watering, so the blood of patriots and tyrants needed to be shed. Though unsuccessful in overturning the 2020 election, the insurrection served as a preamble of what was to come. The 2024 election, an assumed governmental takeover by an increasingly reactionary and fascististic right. But is this simply fear-mongering on my part to bandy about fascism and civil war? Is that leftist hyperbole? Or is the threat of civil war real? Joining us today is Jeff Charlotte for a conversation on his collection of essays, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, published in 2023 by Norton. We're gonna get a lot of, we're gonna get into a lot of the details, but the short of the 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 shorthand of the work is that Charlotte has spent the last eight years attending Trump rallies, mega churches, and other far right gatherings, and under in, in order to understand what it is that brings these people together. Charlotte is the New York Times bestselling author or editor of eight books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, adapted into a Netflix documentary series, and This Brilliant Darkness. His reporting on LGBTQ plus rights around the world has received the National Magazine Award, the Molly Irvins Prize, and Outright International's Outspoken Award. His writing and photography have appeared in many publications, including Vanity Fair, for which he is a contributing editor. The New York Times Magazine, GQ, Esquire, Harper's, and VQR, for which he is an editor-at-large. He is the Frederick Sessions Beebe 35 professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College. I should also add that The Undertow will be out in paperback for the first time within the next week. And Jeff Charlotte is also the finalist, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Jeff, thanks for joining us again on WORT. Welcome to Public Affair. Hi, Andrew. Good to be back with you again. So, Jeff, you and I spoke last March, just before The Undertow was published. I'm curious to know what has changed in your observations since then. And does my intro sound like liberal fear mongering to you? I mean, it's only liberal fear-mongering if you think uh, uh, senior military command in the United States are, are is a liberal conspiracy. Part of the, the civil war anxiety that set into me that, that helped me make this book or prompted me to make this book um, came from uh, a number of retired senior generals. Uh, and in particular, there's one Washington Post op-ed in which they said, look, the real risk here is not militiamen marching on the Capitol. It's a split in the armed forces. And I think folks who are outside the military are assuming a uniform monolithic military that is maybe not as in good shape as it has been. And so their anxiety was, of course, a chain of command dispute. Uh, if you have commanders who, in all good faith, are unclear on who is president, is it Donald Trump or is it Joe Biden? Whose orders should they follow? Um, both declaring themselves president, as could happen in the beginning of, of 2025. Um, so I don't think, no, I don't think it's liberal fear mongering. And I think also part of what set me off on this book was after January 6, 2021. Um, 
And it's true, I've been reporting on this material for a long time, more than eight years, in fact. I've been reporting on the right for 20 years and, and sort of became fascinated by, oh, this is a different beast And uh, after 2016. But I start hearing historians, uh, scholarly historians and political scientists using that phrase, civil war, which had always been a fringe term, mostly on the right um, and easily dismissible. And when I heard historians who... Um, uh, well, there in Madison, maybe enough people know academics to know that the the stereotype of the liberal, screaming liberal academic is a little bit of uh, a little bit misleading. Historians are slow and cautious, and they know that history moves slowly. And if they were saying, "Well, no, actually, the conditions here, they could lead to that," that meant I had to take it seriously. So I don't think it's it's liberal scaremongering to say it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's liberal scare. It's scaremongering to say anything is inevitable. Um, it's actually reasonable and prudent to say, mm. hey, we have some real risks on the table. How do we confront them? You've gotten a little bit of pushback about using the R word, using the F word in your work, using address, calling something racism, calling something racist, calling something fascist. What is the, what is the use of those words in this, in this current moment and what you've been observing? Uh, I would argue and of course, this is subjective, I would argue accuracy. Um, uh, you mentioned that little bit of pushback, and I think that came actually shortly after you and I spoke a year ago. And uh, the very second event I did for this book um, at a Wisconsin bookstore I love, and though, so I won't name, and no, it's not, <laughs> not there in Madison. Um, and uh, uh, you can read about this, and, and American Prospect, the writer Rick Perlstein, decided to go and get a the recording of the exchange that I had with a New York Times senior political reporter. And I won't name him either because it's not Maggie Haberman and the name isn't important. It's the head in the sandness of reporters who don't not so, so resist the R term, the F term, calling something racist, calling something fascist, that they don't even bother to find out, to do the research, to do the history work, to understand what those terms might mean. Uh, we, uh, we, so we, yeah, that was the pushback. If anything, what's been dismaying is there's been less pushback after a year of doing all kinds of media, mainstream media, talking to conservative radio hosts, not far right hosts, but sort of never Trumpers. I was sure people were going to say now, Hey, that's a little too much. If anything, I seem to be behind the curve. Um, and what scares me most are, uh, also there in Wisconsin, Charlie Sykes, uh, the conservative, uh, longtime conservative host there in Wisconsin and the other never Trumpers um, who are more familiar with what's happening inside and are more comfortable with the R word, the F word. And these are folks that some people might say, well, they always were part of that. They might say that too, but they're saying, yes, this is not what it was. What it was, you may disagree with, but what it is now is in the historical sense outlined by great scholars like I could give you a list, but you know, go to the library and do your own work. Um, as fascism, not the word for which we we just say something that we don't like. Trump just in Michigan this past weekend called Joe Biden fascist. Fascism means a cult of personality. That's Trump, organized around an idea, a myth of national greatness that has somehow been dented deep, deep grievances by enemies within, to which the solution is a combination of militarism and misogyny, all filtered through a kind of, some kind of ethnic nationalism in the United States, certainly white supremacy, um, and which conflates uh, capitalism uh, and, and, and kind of cronyism and uh, passes off, as in the old terms, national socialism, uh, really, everything becomes subordinated to that that cult of personality. So business capitalism, it's not just straight capitalism, it's something new. That's historically what we mean by fascism. That's, in the moment, what the Trump movement, it's not a regime, and that's the difference, but the Trump movement aspires to, and is now really laid out in very plain words. For those listening, we are in conversation with Jeff Charlotte, author of The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. If you would like to join our conversation today, you can give us a call at 608-256-2001. Jeff, you're talking about this cult of personality, and have you seen the, it seems like as you write about the right, it is multifaceted. It has a lot of different, um, a lot of, di it appeals to a lot of different 
types of folks, different emotions, different affects. As you've been paying attention the last 10 months since the publication, have you seen developments or evolutions that perhaps surprised you or just or, or, or just natural developments to something that was already um, underway? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think when we spoke in March, I said, look, as dark as this book is, I consider it a hopeful book. It begins and ends with sort of great freedom struggles from the past as a reminder that the struggle is long. And I try to hold on to that hope. But if anything, I see the moment as darker. I see the threat of civil war uh, or political violence as diminished. Um, the risk now to me is of acquiescence. Um, of uh, certainly, uh, I never was waiting for the never Trumpers to reclaim the Republican party. The never Trumpers themselves say it's impossible. Um, uh, I was waiting for the Democrats to put up uh, a stiffer back and we see now it's not likely going to happen. And instead, so many of us are retreating into reassurance narratives. And the reassurance narratives, I, I, I'm stunned now between when I started going out with a book almost a year ago and now when I go out, I hear more often now that Trump can't win, even though Trump has only built strength. Well, he can't win. Once the people, American people see who he is, this is a reassurance narrative. It's fear speaking. We know who he is. People are choosing him for that. Um, he's building support in almost every demographic, the demographics that are supposed to save us. And by us, I mean the kind of the whiteness that relies on others to, uh, oh, uh, black women will come and say, Trump's actually gaining amongst black women, not much, but he's going up in every corner. And I think that that is part of the cult of personality. When the cult of personality does, it doesn't mean that you admire the person. It means you submit to the overwhelming ego of the person, that there's an inevitability to this ego. And uh, I think we need to turn that around um, because that's actually gotten stronger in the past 10 months. Did you think any of the other candidates ever stood a chance? No, no. Um, and I, I think, uh, uh, I mean, you know, Nikki Haley now, uh, I mean, uh, Cornell West is running for the Democratic uh, nomination, and uh, Cornell is an old friend of mine. I, I I I love him and admire him. I think he, personally, I think he is making a mistake, um, but uh, I think he has a um, every bit as good a chance as Nikki Haley of becoming president. Um, uh, no, and and I think it's also worth understanding it's Trumpism that's running. Mm -hmm. Trump is the carrier. He's the avatar, but it's Trumpism that's running and Trumpism is going to be on the ballot. And I think it's going to be in the form of Donald Trump. Do you anticipate these legal cases creating any, any kind of, uh, any kind of barrier or is this something that's going to get brushed aside? I know I was just trying to, I was writing a, a Twitter thread about this, trying to go bit by bit through these kind of narratives because we're seeing some kind of centrist, centrist liberal columnists like the New York Times, is, uh, Michelle Goldberg and Ezra Klein talking in practical terms, like maybe Biden should step aside uh, and so on. And a lot of people saying, you know, there's the reason, well, that would just, it's not going to happen. So why talk about it? But then the people saying, no, nothing to worry about. And once, once these indictments come through, or once these convictions come through, that's another reassurance narrative. We've seen again and again um, that uh, um, uh, his numbers go up, as he said just the other night in Michigan, his numbers go, go up after almost every court appearance because they're true to character. What works in theater and fiction and politics is uh, being in character. Um, Trump being defiantly in character and the conviction seeming like something is askew and the paranoia that it's instilling, not just in his deepest base, but even in when you go and you look at surveys of independence, huh, wait a minute, maybe this justice system is weaponized. Maybe I could get in deep trouble. Trump right now is leading, has been steadily leading Biden by 1%. That to me is too close. Uh, um, uh, well, I don't want anything, but um, and people say, well, but when if you show post conviction, Biden would be leading by two percent. That would be for a moment a bump um, until Trump normalizes that 
And of course, the reassurance narrative is Biden winning by 2% of the popular vote means he loses the electoral college. So no, convictions are not going to save us. We are in conversation with Jeff Charlotte on his book, The Undertow. If you have comments or questions, please call in at 608-256-2001. Jeff, one of the themes across your work that seems most salient to me, and you return to it in a number of different ways, but it's the idea of, of American myth-making or the, the, the myths, the dreams, the romances that kind of buttress up this, this idea of, of Trumpism. Can you tell us some of the, the ideas that are foundational to, to Trumpism as, as, as you've observed them over the years? I think the forever revolution of 1776 really was sort of simmering and you would hear it referenced uh, even back in 2016 and then through the 2020 campaign, but then it settled in on January 6, 2021. And there was the confirmation that indeed this, this was a battle uh, as Joe Biden would like to say, for the soul of the nation. Um, and uh, um, and there's almost a, when, when you speak to January Sixers, and I've spoken to a number of them, it, it's almost like time has collapsed. It's 1776. It's always 1776. It's always 2020 that, that uh, uh, um, disputed election is always happening, and it's always January 6, 2021, and it's always right now and and i borrow a term from christian theology for this kairos which is an idea of ritual time and, and a really dumbed down kind of simple way to understand kairos is to think of every year at christmas right it's christmas 2023 but it's all the christmas has passed um well now in the kind of weird religious mythology of trumpism it's always 1776 and everything is always entirely on the table, which of course undermines the idea of liberal democracy, which is, all right, we're going to go and we're going to debate. No, it's big change right now, always. So yeah, it's it's interesting that there's this kind of uh, conflation of of civil war of revolution. One of the one of the things that I noted that as reading throughout the throughout the work, that you were often able to use civil war as a shorthand with people. People would be kind of fumbling for words and you would be like, civil war? Suggesting I'd be like, exactly, that that's it. But presumably like people are understanding that differently because you were in a lot of different places. Yeah. So like how how was how was civil war understood, but also in a context of seventeen seventy six kind of throwing off a foreign a foreign a foreign oppressor? I mean, these people urging us on towards civil war understand civil war as well as they do 1776 which is to say um as as a fiction i think of one january 6er george riley who i met in sacramento um who uh um claimed to be a native american man filmed himself in in the capital saying i'm taking my land back and was very dismayed by the fact that uh, the man who put his boots on Nancy Pelosi's desk got all the uh, fame when he had, in fact, George had pulled down his pants and uh, rubbed his behind on Nancy Pelosi's desk. That was his great achievement. And and when I asked him to try and explain this, uh, he turned to the movie the Zack Snyder Gorefest 300, which is based on a graphic novel. It's not based on actual ancient Greek history. Um, of a battle of Spartan warriors against a Persian horde. This was his understanding of 1776. This was his understanding of civil war. And I think, of course, it's important to remember that very few folks in the United States, um, unless they were you know, born in another country, have direct personal experience of civil war. So where do they, do they get it from a TV movie? Do they get it from Red Dawn? Everywhere I went, people... You know, I would give them, I would say, so they're trying to describe something. I would say civil war and they would say yes. And then they would come back with a movie because of course, this is the language with which we describe our fictional ambitions, aspirations, and fears. Um, it's a movie, but the ammo is live. Um, the guns are real. And, and I think, uh, um, you know, the young man I met in Wisconsin Dells, great admirer of Rambo, uh, young guy, probably born after 9-11, certainly long after the movie Rambo and half a century after the Vietnam War. It felt very present. He felt like he was ready to embody it. 
he was ready to be it. He was ready for the conflict because he knew not anything about the conflict. He knew Sylvester Stallone. He knew a fiction. So how did these myths, how did these fictions, how does the media scape create what you term the, the, the undertow? Like what, what is the undertow and how do, how do those, how do, how do these feed into, into that phenomenon? I, I came, yeah, I came up with the title the undertow before January 6, 2021, when this is a slightly different book. And I was going to gather about 10 years of reporting because I've been reporting on, on, on right-wing movements around the United States and the world for about 20 years. And, and I was thinking about which strands had I seen sort of pulling us toward Trumpism. Um, and I think Trumpism be is best understood as a convergence of many different right-wing strands that traditionally wouldn't speak to one another. So there was that sense of like, oh, this current, we, we were moving toward this all along. And at the same time, I was thinking of the undertow as, well, as maybe this relationship to myth is, is best exemplified through the sort of the, the, the central subject of the book, Ashley Babbitt, the, the, uh, the young woman who, an insurrectionist leading a charge on January 6th in the Capitol was killed and became a martyr of the movement. She's, she's a sort of a, a almost mythical figure herself now. And people would say afterwards, if you look in the comments of newspapers, Washington Post, New York Times, and people would say, oh, she was a fascist. She was always a fascist. She deserved to die and so on. No one is born a fascist. Ashley wasn't. Um, Ashley uh, was a Democrat most of her life. Her second favorite president was Barack Obama. She struggled hard to be a good person. She, there were forces affecting her life she didn't understand. She got into enormous debt with her pool cleaning business. There was no honest way out of it. She lived in Southern California where there is a profound houselessness crisis and she lacked the language of neoliberalism. She lacked, she didn't know, she, I don't think she even knew capitalism enough to critique it, right? And one day a houseless guy defecates on her front lawn and there's donald trump and she's angry and she feels guilty about her anger and the undertow is stop fighting it just give into that anger and here is a mythic world to take you lean back and this current will carry you out to sea and you'll be part of this great force and i think that's that's the undertow the undertow is is all these right-wing movements sort of making this current into which ordinary people who were not born fascist can give in, can just let themselves be carried. And a big part of that, as you've you've pointed out, is the cult of personality, the the big ego, the charismatic leader, which we often see. We see some of Trump's campaigns mirroring this, but we see as kind of like a, in a lot of mega churches, pastors and mega churches. You spend a decent amount of time in the book going to these different churches. Many of them mega churches, some of them big tent revivals. What is the role of Christian fundamentalism as part of this myth-making process on the right? You know, I I, I just read a book, and I'm not going to name because I don't think well of it. It's a new, it's a new book out by uh, uh, a former conservative who has sort of uh, seen the light and is now covering as a, a reporting on this stuff. And this person describes uh, in 2021 speaking to friend and the friend says you know you can't understand it without christian nationalism and it's like a light bulb for her and she says what christianity is part of this uh, um, yeah christianity is part of it but christian nationalism and i think one of the things when and i i write in, in the book about the first trump rally i went to in youngstown ohio in 2016 and it's opened by the hardest right pastor i've ever heard and i've been reporting on right-wing churches for years i've i've heard a lot but i'm talking i'm in there amongst the crowd i don't go as press i just always go as myself and um i'm talking to folks these are not churchgoers and yet here they are cheering for this angry hellfire coming from this pastor and uh i i don't know if i would have understood it if i hadn't reported been reporting in uh russia some years before and seeing Vladimir Putin's use of Christian nationalism, whereas in the Russian Orthodox Church looms large in Putinism. Everybody loves the idea of Russia restoring the Christian faith. Nine percent go to church. They don't go to church. Christian nationalism is not actually about piety. It's not about church going. It is about an identity wrapped up 
in white supremacy, but also in some ways inoculated against the charge of racism. Um, uh, and that's why so often, and even now, you go to a Trump rally, the pastor who opens it, and there's always a pastor who opens it, and there's always a press that ignores it, um, is so often uh, uh, a black person or a Latino person. And to a mostly, although not exclusively, white crowd and saying, look, see, we don't go to church and they may hold a lot of racist views, but here I am cheering for this black pastor as he preaches white supremacy. One of the mainstays of Trump rallies, you write, are, are the parables uh, mm. that he tells. And you say that a lot of folks in the media are not reporting on the on the theatric the theatricality uh, of of the Trump rallies, other than maybe some outrageous things he says. But as you describe, there's a lot more that goes on. Can you tell us about that? Because you say that like the, it it ultimately forms the core of Trumpism, and yet that it's something that if you're not attending these rallies, you may not you may not be getting that much exposure to. So yeah, what's yeah. the role of the parable or, or of the theater with Trump? And and first, let me say, um, uh, because I've been seeing, you know, we, we, I think a lot of us are frustrated by Biden's age, Biden's age. We want more, more nuanced reporting on that. And then a lot of liberals saying, what about Trump's age? And he's obviously lost more than a step and his words are a mishmash. Uh, I have not been attending this time. I've been watching um, and I've been talking to colleagues who are attending. Uh, I don't think Trump has lost a step. I think that desire to believe that is the mis the same misunderstanding of the theatricality that was in 2014 or 2016 and 20 uh, and 2020. Um, that there is a performance that is disdainful of the ordinary flow that exercises its power through its display of free association. And this X reminds me of of L. And now I'm going to jump to Z and you're going to follow me. And that's a cult of personality. And then I'm going to drop in a ready-made story. And the story, um, I think of one in uh, uh, Hershey, Hershey, Pennsylvania at a rally in 2020, Hershey, Pennsylvania, um, the so-called sweetest place on earth. It really is where they make the candy and the streetlights are shaped like Hershey's kisses. And, um, uh, and Trump made a joke, uh, a joke and all, Trump jokes must be in quote marks. They're joking, not joking. They're, it's a threat and a joke at the same time, just like a schoolyard bully. He says, maybe it won't be four more years, maybe it'll be 12 more years. And then he says, look at the scum out there. He means the press, the stay in their pen. And he says, look at the scum out there. He says, that's all they're going to report tomorrow. Sure enough, that's what they reported tomorrow. They didn't report the particular sort of storytelling that he did at that, which was a, a it seems like a 15, 20 minute riff that, that, that began with you, you, second person. Now you're the subject of the story. You're away, you're a traveling salesman. Traveling salesman, what is this? Um, and and you, start, you start to see where it's coming. You're a traveling salesman and uh, a man, and he's already spoken about the bad hombre. So we know what color this man is and we know what his immigration status is in this telling, right? Uh, creeps in through the window and your beautiful wife is sleeping innocently and the wife gets raped and then it keeps going. And he says in Philadelphia, and he starts describing as if specific individual killers, child killers who are being let out of prisons in Philadelphia on purpose and being set into the Pennsylvania countryside, a war of the city uh, against the folks, spell that with an F or a V as you feel, see fit. Um, and, uh, and, and the most gory language, disembowelments, decapitations, knives being twisted on and on in the crowd thrilling as if they're watching a slasher film and the press has got their story 12 more years and that doesn't get covered now there's there's structural issues with the way the political press is structured right now and i have sympathy for my colleagues who are on that conventional beat um that make it difficult but the problem is again and again and again saying that's just theater there's no such thing as just theater there's theater and it's powerful and it's kept this awful movement central to American life for eight years now. You were listening to A Public Affair on Community Radio WORT 89.9 FM. Our guest today is Jeff Charlotte, and we're discussing his book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. If you'd like to join the conversation with a comment or question, please call us at 608-256-2001. 
still got plenty of time to get those um, to get those in. Thinking a little bit more about the role of of Christian nationalism, you know, the a, 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 or or just the the role the role of megachurches and and their long connection with the right is a better way of framing that. But I'm I'm thinking of the recent shooting at Joel Osteen's church in Houston, Texas, uh, my my hometown actually. And there's been some rumors floating out there now that say, you know, again, instead of pushing for gun legislation, there have now been rumors out there that the shooter was a trans person. And I don't know if that's been confirmed or not, but it, it's, it seems like an interesting intersection of, uh, of fears that are cropping up on the right. And I was just wondering if, if you had any thoughts on that. It's, uh, to, to my knowledge, I can say it's confirmed that uh, the shooter was not a trans person because we've had interviews uh, with her mother um, uh, and speaking of, of her life. Um, and although I would add, I, I don't think that matters. Um, if it's a, look, if it's a white man, it's a, a, we know this riff, right? It's a mentally ill person. If it's a trans person, it becomes in the boogeyman culture of contemporary fascism, every trans person. Um, uh, there was uh, a trans person who committed uh, a mass shooting in uh, what was it, in Nashville, um, and that figure continues to loom larger in so many right wing circles than 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 all the other mass shooters. Um, it's the ability to sort of vilify an individual and make them into a class. Um, I think it's fascinating and terrifying to me that I finished this book in in uh, twenty early twenty twenty two. And since then, and I don't really talk too much about uh, the fear of trans folks uh, in this book because the fascists I was speaking to were talking about it at that time. That's how quick that wave came on. And this is an issue I'm very attuned to. I have a trans child, even where I live in uh, Vermont, my kids' schools in New Hampshire, uh, uh, there are challenges to the school. Um, there are challenges in Vermont. This is everywhere. This has become a very effective wedge. And I think one of the things that it tells us, the most important thing we can learn about uh, from that uh, is that this is, that is the front line right now. And I say this especially for those liberals who are out there and saying, well, but I have questions. Uh, save your questions. It's a which side are you on moment. Um, uh, um, there are kids in school being threatened by men with guns. Which side are you on? Are you sitting there? Well, I'm not sure I'm on either side. I'm with the kids. That one's easy. Um, um, but also it won't stop there because be before it was trans folks, it was, uh, it was Muslims, it was undocumented people. The enemy within has to be constantly mutating in fascism. It needs to be appealing to freshness and newness. And it's one of the paradoxical paradoxes of of fascism and historical movements and in its american form now is that you're invoking uh tradition versus the tides of change so that the change has to be constant if it's an old, if it's a steady battle these guys versus these guys um then it can't be sustained and i think they'll never drop any of the enemies um but i don't know who the next enemy will be uh but there will be another one and trans people like uh, uh, undocumented people, like immigrants in general, like Muslims. Um, and I would also add like Jews, because what's been astonishing about this campaign is the surging role of a different kind of right-wing anti-Semitism. We hear a lot of people complaining in the news about what people are saying at college campuses, and they're not paying attention to what Trump is saying at rallies of thousands, which to me is much more frightening than what an 18-year-old who is angry about the world says. I'm more concerned about the guy who might be the next president and, and his anti-Semitism. Jeff, when, when you and I spoke last year, you said that, you know, independent programming like places like WORT and where we're having this conversation right now that that we have more and more become the fringe and it's speaking to this point that you know as as Trump is speaking to thousands in our last conversation you talked about Tucker Carlson who was at Fox at the time having millions and millions of viewers and so I'd like to return to that and talk about the restructuring of what we see the mainstream and the fringe media and, and 
what what have what have been what have you been noticing over the last ten months? Uh, you know, the the penultimate chapter of this book, which is set in Wisconsin, it's called the Great Acceleration. Borrowing a term that began on the left and then moved right of accelerationism. Let's bring it on. Let's bring this this great conflict on. And I think uh, in those ten months, we've seen an accelerationism of the collapse of media. Um, and uh, in some ways, right, uh, this station, me, we're the fringe. On the other hand, we're less the fringe because there's fewer of us. Um, there's a lot fewer of us. When I look at the media collapse between the media that was covered, if I went to a Trump rally in 2016, I'd see reporters from a number of publications that don't exist. Just recently, we saw the LA Times, big, big layoffs, including the great Gene Guerrero, who is the leading authority, wrote the book literally on Trump's architect of immigration hate, Stephen Miller. Now is the time the LA Times, eh, we don't really need here. The Baltimore Sun, once a mighty paper, now run as a, an explicitly Trumpist organization. Um, and I think, uh, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're less than the fringe now, but um, we are we are voices in the wilderness. And uh, uh, I think we have to be loud about that um, because there's so many fewer of us. Jeff, I know that professionally you are, you're an instructor. You teach, you teach writing, you teach English, um, you teach literature. Um, I was an instructor for over a decade at, at UW. Our show's regular host is also a college English teacher. And I want to talk to you about how are you taught, you know, what, what is it like to be a teacher in a time of, of slow liberal war? And how, how is politics impacting your classroom? How is it impacting these young voters? How are they, how are they understanding this? What are, what are your students saying? I want to tell you, you know, I, I think of this whenever I hear this sort of, um, uh, the hysteria of what's happening on the campuses and these intolerant students. And I, I love my students. I teach creative writing. Um, uh, most of them are not aware enough of the world for intolerance or tolerance to be an issue. Um, uh, I recall a year ago, uh, a Ukrainian student uh, reading uh, an essay, a powerful piece about losing her best friend in, in the war. And the students sat there quietly and I thought that they were just overwhelmed, but no, it was because they felt uncomfortable because they weren't really sure what was going on with that whole thing. Was it Russia invaded Ukraine and who were the good guys? They just didn't know. And I think that's directly related to the great media die-off. It would be easy enough to blame the young, um, easier to note the fact um, that there is less real media, there's more weak media, such as uh, uh, TikTok and so on. Um, and so for me, it's, I, I don't preach politics in the classroom. Uh, I preach, read a newspaper. Um, uh, 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 the start there, that'll be a beginning. We're going to go to the phone lines now. We have Joanne on the line with a, a question or comment about Trump and higher education. Hello, Joanne. Welcome to A Public Affair. Go ahead. Great show. I just have a comment. Um, uh, Trump uh, portrays himself as being a very intellectual person connected with Wharton School. Uh, his, uh, uh, one of his uh, um, uh, forefathers uh, was uh, uh, a leading figure in physics. Uh, from MIT and all that as he presents it. Um, and I'm just wondering how that might signal Trump's future relationship, if any, or at least rhetorical relationship in the present to higher education, uh, how he will spin uh, expertise that is bol bolstered in some way by higher education. So thanks so much. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a great question. And, and, and there's an implicit optimism that maybe maybe there'll be some respect for what higher education can offer because of the way he brags on it um but i think the way that he brags on it is is destroyed there's a document that you can look at that's pretty useful that the heritage foundation the big right-wing think tank that has long been the architect of republican administrations and not wanting to be caught off guard uh, in 2025 as they were in 2016 they prepared a 900 page policy guide 
uh, 400 contributors, mainly many top Trump uh, uh, advisors. They're putting together uh, uh, 5,000 lawyers ready to defend it legally so that they can go from day one. And higher education is in there. It's a blueprint for the transformation of American life. Everything from a kind of a secret police to uh, the uh, what amount to sounds like a lot like concentration camps for undocumented people, um, but also for the either destruction or uh, replacement of higher education. And I think one of the, the, the great mistakes of the liberalism and the left has long been um, uh, the, the, the idea, liberals want to believe that the university is above politics and it is sort of neutral. And, 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 and the left, and I count myself on the left, we're able to say, hey, look, no, wait a minute, you know, the university is complicit in all kinds of ways and so on. And neither of them are recognizing what the right knows. The right knows that the university, with all its weaknesses, its failings, its disappointments, its inadequacies, it is an institution, and institutions stand in the way of the erasure of rule of law that is authoritarianism. Um, so the goal is to, to wreck higher education. And they've made great strides um, uh, all around the country. And just this past week, in fact, I think Nebraska and Indiana are passing laws about their higher education systems, forbidding an incredible range of teaching topics. Um, it's not just Florida. Uh, it's here in New Hampshire as well. New Hampshire, I believe we have a tip line for reporting professors. Um, uh, um, every college instructor, you may have dealt with this in your time, Andrew, knows about the various small right-wing publications that specialize in getting students to go into your classroom and to secretly record them and see if they can catch you on a word that doesn't work. And then they've got a big fish and they can put it um, on national press. I think as much as libraries are front lines, um, higher education is a front line. And I think this, I wanna, I wanna call liberals to recognize, hey, you, you don't get to claim this is neutral. This is a which side are you on deal. They wanna tear it down. You gotta defend this thing that we have. And I wanna call leftists to say, hey, um, I may have a lot of problems with the university. I'm not gonna shut up about those problems with the university, um, but burning it down is what the right wants. It's what it needs. And uh, we can have those arguments later if we can avoid this war now. Something that you write too, Jeff, is uh, you talk about uh, one of your children's favorite uh, story time books. And one of the refrains is like, we can't go over it, we can't go through, or we can't go over it, can't go under it, we gotta go through it. And you use that towards the end of your, your, your longest essay titled The Undertow as a way of thinking about experiencing the, these very things that you've been describing and you say we've got to go through it the whiteness this stolen land so can can you talk a little bit more that the one thing that you do throughout the work is you are constantly bringing our attention to to indigenous land and you're using that as a way to think again about whiteness about christian nationalism about all these other things that you're dealing with but what does it actually look like to go through this and experience this as a, and I, you know, and I'm probably think, talking largely to white people here, like, you know, white, white society and, and the whiteness, it just structurally baked into to so much of how life runs in the, in the U S what does it mean to go through that? I'm going to expand that a little bit. And I'm going to say it's, it's everybody. And I think there's a temptation of the left now to say, well, fascism, but this group has been living with fascism for a long time. And the reality of fascism is however bad it's been, it can get worse. Um, and it will get worse uh, for everybody. So yeah, white people confronting uh, the loss of rights that a lot of people of color have always dealt with, that's new. Um, but the attack on people of color Will, will become that much stronger. Yeah, that, that goes through it. Um, I guess, and, and using that, I, I was sort of speaking to myself. That's, that's a little bit of hopeful, right? That there is something on the other side. It's this, this children's book and, and they keep encountering difficulties like a swamp or a, a dark woods and they can't go, they have to get to the other side. They can't go over it. They can't go under it. They just go through it. And it's teaching children that, you know, that there are these sort of struggle and scary moments and you have to get through it. This is my hope. I, I, I think 
the great trouble, maybe full-fledged fascist regime is coming. And then what happens when you wake up on the day after that arrives? Is it the end of the world? I had the good misfortune, if I can put it that way, to uh, have had at a very young age, 44, a heart attack right before Trump was elected in 2016. And I remember, and I had been thinking he was going to win for a long time, but that last day I finally gave into the pundits and I said, I, I can't believe it. All right, he, he's not going to win. And I woke up the next day and I said, well, it, beginning of fascism in here and aren't I luck, lucky to be alive to see it? And then what? And then what? The book begins and ends with these singers, Harry Belafonte, Lee Hayes, who, who wrote, If I Had a Hammer, these guys long, long, long in the struggle, both who died knowing that they had not yet won. Harry Belafonte, we lost last year, old, old man, joyous and angry, knew he had not won. The struggle is long. So the, to go through it means to recognize that it's not apocalypse. It's not mm -hmm. the end of the world. It is a very painful world. And you live through it and you keep struggling and you don't say because we're defeated. Well, that's it. That's the acquiescence that I fear. That's the acquiescence like, well, we can't beat Trump. Let's just lean back into this undertow. No, you just got to keep swimming against the current. Yeah, and we have a uh, we have a listener who uh, sent in a question that is kind of piggybacking off of this conversation. You know, they 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 say they are so well organized with support from mega churches and mega money, while the left is so unorganized with little financial support. Is there hope, and if so, where and how? Um. So one of the one one of the aspects of hope is to recognize is is to not. Yeah, the right is a, any any social movement. And that's what fascism is. It's, it's a social movement. It's not a, that is a neutral term. It's, it's it's you know there's good ones and bad ones. I think there's a bad one. It's a convergence of a lot of movements. That um, that document that I spoke of, Project 2025, the Heritage Foundation's 900-page policy document, 75 organizations, many of whom have historically been at each other's throats. Every one of those spots is a fault line. That's a fault line. If we go back and we look at the last eight years of right-wing movements and we look at the number of right-wing stars who have fallen, where's Milo Yiannopoulos now? Nobody remembers him. That's a fault line because these guys are struggling. Uh, we read in the news now that Charlie Kirk, the young leader of Turning Point USA, this right-wing behemoth, is the guy who was really pushing to get out Ronna McDaniel as the head of the Republican National Committee. That's a fault line. He won. And now her allies are coming after him. The hope is not so much. And hey, how do we replicate a big fascist money machine? I don't, I don't want a big fascist money machine. The hope is in identifying those fault lines, going um, and exploiting them. Now, how to do that? That's case by case. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I think to recognize that it is not a hopeless monolith, even those those we speak of those mega churches right now, uh, as my colleague Catherine Joyce has written for Salon, um, there are fault lines here. These are these are old, old fault lines between Catholic right wingers and evangelical right wingers who have been in convergence, but around the the, the national conservatives and the new integralists, these wonky terms where the intellectuals now they're having theological and political disputes. Um, let us push on those and let us use those openings to come into the gap with good, beautiful ideas for how the world can be. Imagination is the hope. And that sounds a little kind of childish, um, but speaking forth with radical ima imagination um, is what the right has been doing. They are offering what their version of a utopia a world that isn't that could be we need to do the same instead of saying let's just hold on to this little vestige and pretend that the threat isn't there has there been any uh organizing in particular that you've seen over the last particular uh, uh, over the last few months that has made you particularly hopeful or, or or excited are there are there new tactics that that you've you've come across or are groups doing something differently to, to, to reach people? Or is it just the, the foundations of civil society that like we normally tap into, like these local community connections? All right, I'll, I'll say this. I, I, I was invited with a, a, 
to go down and speak on a panel for about 150 New York City activists. Um, and we were going to talk about this heritage, this policy document, Project uh, 2025. And it was some old organizers from ACT UP, that legendary, mm-hmm. very imaginative um, uh, uh, queer rights, uh, anti-AIDS organization, right? And they saw that a lot of the young activists weren't really aware of the full threat of the rights. So they invited a group of folks to come down and talk about it. And uh, the answer is a little bit like, well, I didn't see what I needed to see there. Um, uh, People were not familiar with what was going on. They were in New York City. The threat to them was 100,000% the Biden administration. The idea that Trump could win or that there would be any difference was not there at all. They were rightly horrified by what's happening in Gaza, but to the extent that they could not see the possibility of the expansion of that with Trump. I'm not saying I wanted them to vote for Biden. I just wanted them to know what was going on, and they didn't. So I think right now we are in a, what I hope is a blip of of reassurance narrative, because as radical as those young folks were, they were actually in a reassurance dream. They were in the idea that they could have uh, uh, these other fights, that they had the luxury of these fights. Um, uh, Instead of the existential one right there, they were drawn by the idea of advocating for another when their own lives were on the line. And I think um, uh, my hope lies in the growing number of voices that I see coming from radical communities, liberal communities saying, this is it. This is it. And and that doesn't mean abandoning these other fights, but it does mean sitting together in real uneasy, uncomfortable coalition. What in the 1930s was called the popular front um, uh, that began with communists and included centrist Democrats um, and had a lot to do as much as FDR with why the United States uh, did not go fascist in the 1930s, as was possible. Um, as was possible, as was proposed by some in power. Um, uh, uh, we need those kinds of coalitions. So I'm encouraged by the voices, and I know there's local organizing happening everywhere. There's tons of good local organizing. I'm encouraged by the, the pushback on Moms for Liberty and the school mm-hmm. boards. I'm encouraged by librarians stepping up, the fierce, fierce librarians who know that they are on the front lines. I'm encouraged by all those. I'm encouraged by all the trans activists who are saying, this is it. This is, uh, we're not gonna you know, try and be invisible. We're gonna be very visible uh, in order to save our lives. Well, Jeff, that is gonna bring us to the end of our show today. Today, we've been in conversation with journalist Jeff Charlotte on his book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, published in 2003 by Norton. It'll be out next week in paperback. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today on A Public Affair. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, You've been listening to A Public Affair. I have been your guest host, Andrew Thomas. Thanks to our sound engineer, Jack and our producer Jade Isiri Ramos, as well as our receptionist Amy and news director Shally Pittman. Douglas Haynes is your regular host of the program. Looking forward to getting him back in the studio sometime soon. Up next is Madison Bookbeat. Guest Cole, uh, host Cole Erickson will be in conversation with Ben Platic on his book, Dry Land. Keep it tuned here to your community-sponsored radio station, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Be reported, disregard the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre recorded with information that would never be.